What's happening, everybody? Welcome to iDGen, where each week we track down and explore the most interesting crypto stories around hacks, scams, exploits, and anything else that feeds our crypto curiosity. Welcome, DGens. Come one, come all. I'm your host, Hunt Fry, and I got my co host here, Zach Wolf. What's up, Hunt? It's been another epic, epic week in crypto. And we're going to dive deep into the Beanstalk Farms attack that everybody's talking about and explore some growing criticisms of the Axie Infinity play to earn world economy. So, but first, let's jump into our uh, choice picked weekly DGen headlines. So, uh, ETH 2.0, the merge has been pushed back from a targeted Q2 release in June to a to be determined date in Q3 2022 or later. Are you surprised? I'm not really. ETH staking post merge will likely be lower than anticipating. The crypto slate lets us know. And then uh, DeFi superstar Andre Cronier comes back after his third time rage quitting and starts beating the crypto needs regulation drum. And then uh, Ethan Gash from Kotaku says crypto gaming landlords upset they can't keep exploiting all their players. Diminishing returns of the play to earn game of Axie Infinity is showing that the long term model of some of these guilds is unsustainable. Um, We'll get more into that one. Excited to talk with Zach about that one. There's a new phishing attack that involves Google ads this time. Uh, Trade Dog on Twitter says that over $4.31 million has been exploited through this new phishing attack through Google Ads. Here's another update from our Ronin Bridge hack that we did in our first episode. The Lazarus Group, a North Korean-based hacker group, has claimed responsibility for the Ronin Bridge hack. So last week we heard that they might be responsible, but this week it seems that they are taking full responsibility. Um, whether they claimed responsibility before the the U.S. government kind of hinted that they thought it was them, I don't know. But we'll have to continually to keep everybody posted on this because this is a really interesting, wild story. And uh, last but not least, the U.S. House Democrats call for scrutiny in crypto mining as an environmental threat. We got U.S. Rep. Jared Huffman, a Democrat from California who leads a subcommittee within the House of Representatives Natural Resources Committee has recruited almost two dozen Democratic colleagues to urge federal environmental officials to devote further scrutiny to the consequences of crypto mining. I wish he would give so much effort to educating everybody on crypto mining, and so they fully understood this topic. I hate that it's becoming a political and it's on one side of the aisle or the not, but I guess that's how everything goes in our country. So, you know, if I, if I could make a recommendation, Jared Huffman, if you're out there, listening maybe think about crypto mining as a national security issue and get us set up in the u.s as you know the top uh crypto miners in the world just a a recommendation i'm not saying that we shouldn't tackle the environmental issues but as a matter of national security in my opinion it would be better for the u.s to secure massive amounts of bitcoin mining rigs and address the problem accordingly from there. That's a great point, Zach, because 
I think a lot of people don't think about fees and energy as security, but that's what it is. And we're talking terms that these representative understands. They spend massive budgets on securing our monetary system through planes and bombs and guns and wars and they have huge budgets for that but then they think it's they dismiss giving any budget to securing a monetary system so that's a great point i bet we could wrap on that forever but everywhere i've been going on twitter this week zach i've been seeing talk about the beanstalk farms flash loan governance and once i sent this to you i know that you've been kind of diving deep so i'm really excited to hear what's going on what's your thoughts and and how this affects the whole space yeah, so I was pretty excited to see this topic, to see this one come up. You know, we do our, our featured deep dive each week, and we don't always want to focus on hacks, but the last, I mean, since we started doing this a month ago, the, the you know, the, the style and nature of these attacks is just so crazy and wild. Uh, I think I saw it called a crime wave. Yeah, how can we not talk about it? Yeah, and so I, I was stoked that we get to deep dive this week onto this one. I started as usual when I look into these DeFi attacks. For me, I like to start with really digging in to understand a little bit about how the protocol works first, if it's if it's one I haven't seen. In this particular case, uh, the, the basic high level, April 17th, 2022, an attacker used a barrage of flash loans to purchase a sizable number of bean tokens. That's the native governance token for the Beanstalk Farms protocol, using this temporarily uh, loaned voting power, allowed them to successfully bypass an emergency, uh, successfully pass an emergency governance proposal that drained the protocol on assets and sent 250K worth of stolen money to the Ukraine war fund. Just wild. That's insane. Yep. So let's start by digging in first quickly to understand who's Beanstalk, what do they do, how do they work. The marketing side from one of their Medium articles, Beanstalk is a decentralized, transparent solution to DeFi's endemic stablecoin supply shortage. It was designed from first principles to be a paradigm-shifting DeFi primitive that makes decentralized, cost-efficient stablecoins available to anyone with an internet connection. Beanstalk was initially launched in August of 2021 with just 100 beans and has never taken traditional funding. Over the last eight months, Beanstalk organically grew to 100 million in market cap, attracting 144 million in long-term incentivized liquidity. That was actually from an article, The Path Forward, that they published since the attack so a little bit of info, pretty new project, right? Hasn't been around long, didn't take on any outside funding. Interesting, I guess, kind of kind of relevant. Now, to understand the attack at a deeper level, it's helpful to unwind a couple of the important concepts of the protocol. So a little deeper into how their protocol works. This is from the Beanstalk white paper. To date, flawed stablecoin implementations sacrificed the main benefits of decentralized computing by requiring trust in a centralized party and limit the potential market capitalization by imposing collateral requirements. A stablecoin that, one, does not compromise on decentralization, two, does not require collateral, and three, trends towards more liquidity and stability 
will unlock the potential of DeFi. We propose an Ethereum native credit-based stablecoin protocol that issues an ERC-20 standard token that fulfills these requirements. An on-chain price oracle leverages existing centralized bridge between the Ethereum blockchain and the rest of the world to create a decentralized, reliable, and inexpensive source for the price of a non-Ethereum native value peg. The final part that's important from the white paper, I believe, is that the DAO, uh, here, here they mention this is a, from the white paper, the DAO, governed by a yield-generating inflationary ERC-20 standard token, simultaneously provides security, encourages consistent liquidity growth, and dampens price volatility. The 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 tough part there is that the uh, the DAO token did not provide security in this particular case. Yeah, it sounds really good on paper, but can they uh, come through with that white paper promises? Yeah, right. Like I thought that was especially interesting that they called it out in the white paper as a means, you know, as as building security. And in reality, it ended up being the opposite. Yeah. We don't know who the attacker is yet. I don't know. I haven't seen anything around it. They're clever. The attack started with coins out coming out of Tornado Cash, and they've taken the funds back through Tornado. So probably not the Lazarus Group. Who knows on that? Don't know yet. Next thing, let's take a quick rundown of the events. So what we're what I'm hoping to do is, is try and kind of explain these attacks in a way that it doesn't you don't have to have a deep understanding of DeFi to kind of get the basic uh, the basic gist of what's happening. So in this case, uh, there were two governance proposals submitted to the governance contract, and those proposals were actually submitted 24 hours before the attack. So that's important, but we're going to revisit that. Then we saw coins coming out of Tornado Cash. They go through this Synapse Protocol bridge, and those coins were used to take out a flash loan. Flash loan is a relatively new DeFi concept in which you can borrow an insane amount of money for next to nothing as long as you return that money in that same block, essentially that, that same transaction. So... This initial very small amount of starting cash was used to take a flash loan, a series of flash loans out on Aave, $350 million in DAI, $500 million in USDC, and $150 million in USDT. So a loan. This is just insane to me that these protocols even exist. Somebody borrowed. I, can't, I don't think it, it probably only cost them a couple hundred bucks at most. And they have a nice appetite for a wide variety of stablecoins, DAI, USDC, USDT, you know, not just one. Yeah. And in fact, there's another one mentioned in here, LUSD, which I'm not familiar with. But uh, yeah, I think that there's probably a strategy in the assortment, but I can't say for sure. Uh, the next important step is that they bought 32 million bean tokens on Uniswap version two. So using a fair bit of that. Uh, flash loan money, they immediately purchased. Again, keep in mind, this is all within a single block. Which this is, is what, happening. 12, 12 seconds is an Ethereum block? Yeah, 15, 12 seconds usually per, wow. per block. So uh, again, there's this next step of some LUSD, which I'm not familiar with. So we'll skip that. 
Next thing, these tokens were used to add liquidity to a curve pool with Bean for the governance voting. So presumably some of the stablecoin and then all the newly purchased, you know, 32 million Bean tokens, they were actually provided as liquidity to a curve pool. Essentially, that liquidity gave them a super majority share of the Bean tokens. Now we go back to those proposals. There is a delay on the governance, a safety mechanism that says a proposal cannot be voted on for 24 hours. Any proposal or proposal of that size? Any proposal. I believe it's a it's a uh, setting that that you know you can, a parameter you can set on the governance contract. Seems smart. Right, and and so um, once we get through the steps, I want to jump into you know, this, this forethought and the 24 hour thing. But, um, the interesting part is that there's two, another interesting part, I should say, is that there's two proposals that were executed. They, they kind of mixed up the names. And so one of them was the proposal that sent money to the Ukraine defense fund. That's nice of them. Right. That was the second one. The first one was where they drained the treasury, but I'm thinking that maybe they, the way that they blurred the names, they tried to make it look less obvious. They didn't want someone to notice 24 hours, you know, during that 24 hour period that something was up. Either way, once they had the super majority of voting shares and they had the 24 hour period up, these proposals were executed. The first one drained the treasury. The second one, again, sent a 250K to, to the Ukraine. Next move, they had to pull all that liquidity back. In order for a, a flash loan to successfully execute, you have to return not only the amount you borrowed, but a little extra in, in fees, right? So now they pull all the liquidity back that they had provided on curve. They repay the flash loan and boom, uh, they convert all their bean to ETH, $76 million worth. And almost immediately, as I understand it, can you guess, Hunt, where they sent that ETH? I'm going to guess a mixer, and I'm going to maybe guess Tornado Cash, a, a weekly theme that we continue to talk about. Was it Tornado tor Cash. I am right. Yeah. That's it. So this all happened within one block. So this is like, like, this is insanely quick. It's just, I don't know, man. It's just so fascinating to think about this. It's almost like to execute an attack like this, it's almost like a, an equation or a mathematical formula is, is kind of set up where you set these different parameters, the pool sizes, the amounts, and you just kind of work that equation until boom, you know, you get a solution that's like, holy shit, we, we plug in X, Y, Z here, you know, uh, I, I've just never, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm ever going to stop being fascinated by these DeFi attacks. Now in, uh, on Beanstalk side in their favor, the one of the lead devs who had been Anon almost immediately uh, revealed their identity, right? So after the attack, so I feel like that was a good move, really stand-up thing to do. He probably didn't want to be accused of you know it being an insider job, and so he you know released his identity. So good on them for that. Overall, there's a a lot of communication from the Beanstalk team. I feel like they handled this really well. Before we jump into that part of it, one of the things that's really important to understand this attack 
is how the governance mechanisms work and why they were able, how they were able to execute a proposal. Uh, you have the 24 hour delay before voting can happen, but you're actually, there is also a parameter that says it takes seven days for the, um, for the voting to be completed. Right. Yeah. And so how would you execute this in one block? Well, if we look to back to the Beanstalk white paper, governance, a robust decentralized governance mechanism must balance the principles of decentralization with resistance to attempted protocol changes, ouch, both malicious and ignorant, and the ability to quickly adapt to changing information. In practice, Beanstalk must balance ensuring sufficient time for all ecosystem participants to consider a Beanstalk improvement protocol. Uh, proposal a bit should silo cast should the silo cast their votes and here's the final piece with the ability to quickly upgrade in case of emergency if we dig into section 652 of the white paper on the voting period the voting period opens when a bip is submitted to the ethereum blockchain and ends at the beginning of the 169th season after it's submitted, or when it is committed with a super majority. That would be, as I understand it, the piece that allowed them to bypass the 169 season, in case you're curious like I was, what the hell a season is. From the white paper, a beanstalk creates a cost-efficient protocol, native timekeeping mechanism to ensure cost-efficient code execution on the blockchain at regular intervals. We don't need to go too much into that probably i feel like hunt i'm like boring you over here no, but i love it but i just it's uh i'm learning so much each season is an hour long that's what uh it took me a little bit to dig around and figure that out so it should have been 169 seasons at roughly an hour piece seven days however doesn't it matter because that simple clause that allowed a super majority to execute an emergency so Basically, this was a, I wouldn't say a backdoor mechanism. It was a security feature that they had built into the contracts in case of an emergency. Hey, if we have a super majority, we can, we can act, you know, more quickly than seven days. And so in the end, that security mechanism backfired. There's some other interesting things about this hack I noticed when you search it and the, the initial news stories, some people report 76 million, others are saying 182. And what this comes down to, 76 million was stolen in Ethereum, converted to Tornado Cash, right? They cashed out uh, th those tokens. The reason that some folks are reporting or other outlets are reporting 182 million is because the value of the bean token post hack dropped ferociously. So the total market cap, right? And and uh, this is an interesting distinction. Uh, Rect.news, they, they mention on their beanstalk right up here, when they categorize and, and classify or rank these attacks by volume, uh, they're looking at the total damage. And so 182 million is if you count the amount of value that you know includes people who are holding the bean stablecoin lost as well. So 76 million went to the hacker. 250 
went to the U, uh, Ukraine Defense Fund. So why didn't anyone notice these proposals? I have no, it seems like nobody was looking, but I feel like that's not the case. Why, why didn't anybody notice, Zach? So here's my thought. Either they looked at it and they were like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, this is never going to pass, right? Or no one looked at it. I feel like those are probably the two most likely. I feel bad. I feel, okay, there's a third scenario. Imagine if there's, you know, a protocol dev that looked at this and was like, this isn't good. Something weird's going on. And they're like hunting around for, you know, few hours before this whole thing happens either way um i wasn't able to track down the governance proposals on snapshot to to see them i don't quite understand why that was in the show notes though i do link to the actual malicious proposals uh, on etherscan they didn't choose to verify the code so you can't view the code but i'm sure eventually we'll we'll get a, a look at what that looks like um another interesting thing is when we were building the GTC token, this this almost exact thing was like a very hotly explored topic. And for us, when we when we released the the Gitcoin GTC token, we were worried that if a whale claimed their airdrop first, like would they have a majority and then be able to immediately oh wow, submit a proposal and pass it, right? That's super interesting. Yeah, so this this is not like um, this involves a flash loan that wasn't the you know even at play for us with GTC because there wasn't enough liquidity uh, existing to to buy up enough GTC to launch this attack. But we successfully you know prevented it from happening in the beginning. Um, something like that with GTC. So I know that at least some folks are thinking about these these types of attacks now on the you know, why is this important? What are the like really interesting takeaways for me? Um, I've not before seen or heard of a flash loan governance attack. They've been happening, but just not in DAOs and governance. Is that, am I correct on that? That is my understanding. Plenty of flash loan attacks, uh, tipping oracles over, you know, things like that. M maybe it's happened. I haven't seen it. And it's, it feels like one of those things where now that I've seen it, it's just like completely obvious in hindsight. Totally. Well, like how many DAOs are currently vulnerable to this type of attack? Great question. I'm thinking about the same thing. And I feel like right now as this, this attack has, is, is pretty fresh, right? It happened on, on Easter. Savage. Completely savage. And I don't know, man, I honestly would not be surprised if we saw another flash loan governance attack, like, within weeks yeah there's got to be a lot of copycats in this hacker world and you know the the interesting part of it being on easter like that's savage because it's a holiday but that was probably not by mistake they were probably hoping that people would be distracted with their family and the kids doing easter eggs and maybe not notice some of these uh suspicious activity going on so i'm guessing that was not dumb luck yeah yeah good point that's i know um you know like targeted phishing attempts and things like that they absolutely will craft those to a certain time of day. Like I got hit with one right when I was waking up once and it was, it was a targeted phishing attack. And they, they do that because they know like you're groggy. You're just picking up your phone. You're, you know, you're more likely to be fooled. So yeah, Easter, <clears throat> probably not a coincidence that they launched it then H hard to say. 
This has me thinking, though, Hunt, if you see a couple of interesting governance proposals show up, could you potentially front run an opportunity like this? Wow. So everybody needs to be thinking about this. I mean, this sounds like if you're in a DAO and working with governance and security, it seems like it's an important topic for people to understand and know what's going on. Hey, certainly for the protocol devs, but in this case, I'm talking more about the opportunists. Oh, yeah. So if you were to write a bot that looked at all, every block in the Ethereum blockchain that's mined and every governance proposal, right? And then do a little bit of poking around, right? If I'm, I'm just glad you're a white hat, Zach, because you always think about these opportunists, but you're uh, you're more interested in learning about it and talking about it on this podcast than you are actually exploiting the opportunities. I'm just glad you're a white hat. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, but at the same time, I don't I don't think I have the skills to pull something like this off. It's it takes a lot to like for me to even unwind it. It's just it's so That that leads me to one of the questions I had for you, Zach, is like how many people in the world are skilled enough to do this? Like when I hear about this, like we both have pretty large networks in the cryptocurrency, blockchain, web three space. And I don't think I know of anybody who could pull this off. If you said you couldn't pull this off, you're probably the most security person that I know. How many people are there out there who, who are this gifted to do this? I mean, that's an impossible thing to, to come up with a number, but I'm, I'm guessing it's pretty rare. Yeah, I don't know. There are a lot of incredibly intelligent black cats out there that have been you know running ransomware and just all kinds of other hacks and things and and DeFi is just the most juicy target right yeah, now there's so much money online and that leads me to one other question is like from my understanding i don't think this could be some 16 year old kid in his basement because to, to borrow that much stable coins wouldn't you have to stake some wouldn't you have to have some financing to to like like they had to have millions of dollars in coins to pull off an attack like this, or am I wrong about that? Uh, that's it, wrong. That's wrong. I okay. didn't look as I was reading through the the notes earlier on the attack steps. I didn't look at the actual transaction that originated coming out of Tornado Cash, but they essentially only needed to execute a flash loan. And while there is a a fee when you return the the flash loan successfully, the uh, cost of executing the loan is i haven't i haven't done a flash loan in a while but i'm gonna i'll just estimate it's probably like 150 200 bucks and there's no collateral with that no that's the absolute brilliance and yeah genius of a flash loan because it's in the same block then you don't need that if mm -hmm. there what you would need collateral if you were taking out a long-term loan for a month or years but because it's in the same block it's pretty much in the same transaction. Wow, that's that's wild. Yeah, they, you know, they allocate you those funds, you use them. If your exploit fails, the whole thing, the flash loan just cancels. It doesn't even the rest of the um your your steps would not even execute and you're just out the fees. So another interesting way to to keep an eye on these things is to monitor flash loans. Of course, flash loans aren't the only way to exploit DeFi, but um, keeping an eye on, on, you know, a flash loan in progress. Could you, you know, if you saw this happen, if you're watching every flash loan and you saw this happen, could you profit off of the idea that the bean token is probably about to lose a lot of value? You'd have to think quickly 
I, I don't know. Um, how do you prevent something like this? You know, delay on-chain proposals, I think, is like a really simple way. Yeah. Again, as I understand it, it was that that emergency mechanism that allowed this to uh, bypass the seven day wait. So, mm -hmm. um, so, so what happened? Like the the two hundred fifty k in uh, stolen funds that went to that Ukraine address. Like, do you think they should send that back? Do they even know that they got malicious funds? I mean, they they are kind of fighting a war right now. All right, my my gut feeling is like they got to send that back. I don't feel like that is legitimate donation money. You have, I don't know, I don't know. that's yeah. the way I feel. I mean, if you put it in the old school world and somebody stole money from a bank and walked down the street and dropped a million dollars into, you know, the Red Cross's lap, I still think the Red Cross would probably give that back, knowing that it was stolen from a bank. Um, but we're in a whole a whole new world with this. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, right. We are. We are in a new world. I know how banks handle that. I I had, uh, I think it was like $1,500 show up in an account once. I was like, what the hell? This is not my money. I don't know where this came from. And I called the bank and they're like, don't touch it. Like if you spend that money and then we end up, you know, finding out it wasn't yours or whatever, we're, we're, we're coming back uh, against you. So anyways, you know, traditional banking versus a crypto war fund with hacked funds are so extremely different. Uh, I don't know. The, the thing here for me is that it's the same kind of repeating theme that we hit. I know that it makes it feel a lot like DeFi's terrible. There's crime waves. It's so full of scams, but I really firmly believe that these are the early days and this is an opportunity for us to learn and build back stronger. Someone will make this same mistake again, but a number of different protocols are patching things right now to prevent it from happening and will build stronger in the future. So I believe this is a natural and painful part of the evolution of DeFi security. That's a really great point. At some point, maybe we should touch on all the, the good things that DeFi is bringing to people too. And I've seen Shapeshift doing some really cool things with you know their in-house DAO token and being able to stake it and allow people to not have to sell their airdrops because they can earn liquidity on that. So there's a lot of good things too. And I think that's a great point, Zach, that sometimes we should talk about you know some of the, the happy, warm, fuzzy stories and not all these you know deep dark back alleys of the crypto world but you know it's, it's too much fun to talk about this stuff so i know when when uh when you were like yeah i think we should talk about beanstalk for the feature i was i was stoked man yeah it's like i'm running with it but i hear you I, maybe I, um we'll do a, a feature next I, week on I, I knew that you would be stoked. And for people who don't know, Zach would be doing this anyways. Like Zach and I would have the same banter of like, I would send him something like, did you see this crazy thing that happened? And then like Zach becomes Sherlock Holmes and like whips out his magnifying glass and starts like trying to figure out how the, how the why and the where. And so it's like really fun to just get a chance to talk about that. And another story, Zach, that I feel like you have some pretty good, uh, insight on is like the whole play to earn world and this like this article that came out you know talking about the the landlords of the play to earn world and the axie infinity model being long term and uh i feel like you you know we're kind of diving deep into the whole play to earn world for a little bit there and learning a lot about it so what do you think about you know the sustainability of axie infinity and these landlords that are out there yeah this one hit really close to home for me 
I I guess it was August, uh, August of 2021, and I met a gentleman through the MCON Telegram chat. Shout out Meta Cartel. And, uh, you know, this guy was putting together a play-to-earn startup, and he needed uh, some technical assistance, and I got on board. And that was turned out to be an extremely crazy five months. So we scaled up an Axie Infinity Guild. At our peak, we had 1,029 scholars. So would this company be considered a landlord like they're talking about in the article? So the article here is talking about the, I think specifically when they say landlords, Axie actually has land that you can purchase. Okay. We didn't uh, at Voltaire Dow. We did not purchase any any land per se, but the general theme here, or the 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 criticism, is you know it comes down to this idea that the play to earn model, at least that that Axie is is set up, has created this ecosystem where. The, the landlords, the, the folks with the money to purchase the expensive NFTs, the land or the axes, then the, you know, the Pinoy workers, folks in yeah. Latin American countries, Venezuela, I think was was like a pretty big on the, the axie. So let me just make sure while you're talking about this that I personally understand this. We've got these play-to-earn games where people are able to participate in these gaming economies and earn some tokens, whether that's the native token or some ETH or an NFT, I don't really know. But there are some people in maybe more developing countries who, you know, them being able to earn $10 a day or $30 a day was almost like a a wage or a full-time living for them. So they obviously had interest in playing these play to get earned games, but there was a barrier to entry for them to start. They needed some funding and they needed some equipment. They made some, some assets to get involved in the game. And so these people who are, you know, maybe landlords or guilds, and I'm not hundred percent sure if I'm right, but they would help these people out by saying, Hey, you can, we'll help you with the barriers to entry, getting into this game and you can earn, but you got to give us a percentage of what you're earning. And am I kind of describing that correct? Or where am I missing it, Zach? No, that's it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and in that context, this particular article, what they're calling out is the sustainability of the overall model because absolutely a hundred percent i can tell you that these players were stoked to have this opportunity we uh so you know we would set up a forum kind of like an application that scholars would fill out so a scholar would be the player and they you know there's this thing took off in the philippines and people the opportunity to make you know, $30 a day is massive. However, there was a peak. If you look at the the Axie charts, August, you know, 2021, things were, I mean, there was so much momentum. Play to earn gaming. Axie was the the darling of, of crypto gaming. Look, it's happened. Everyone was saying that, you know, blockchain is going to change gaming. It's happened. You have this really amazing thing. We're helping people 
all over the world earning income by playing games. It seems like a win-win to me. And it, it really like, you know, I think that a lot of people looked at it and said, that's too good to be true. Doesn't make sense. It's a Ponzi scheme. And a lot of these criticisms were valid. I, I don't know. I really, this idea that you could help people earn a living by playing a game resonated with me. And that's what motivated me to get involved. And the sheer enthusiasm of, of the players. I'm telling you, man, all the way August, November, December, we, we really didn't ramp up heavy until January. We, we massively onboarded a lot of scholars in January 2022, but these folks were stoked. I start looking at these numbers and I'm like, this is something's not right here. Like this is not working. The price of SLP was dropping. What's SLP? Uh, SLP is Smooth Love Potion, which Ooh. is the the currency that you earn when you play Axie. Okay, good to know. Yep, and so SLP had gone from like, I don't know, I think it was 20 plus cents a coin all the way down to a penny. Oh, wow, so 95% drawdown. Right, and so now you have this scenario where an Axie team that was purchased for $1,000, you match that up with the player, and that player's making, you know, for a while... 10, 20 bucks a day. Now that player's making two or three dollars a day. Wow. And so I knew that there was a I, I I don't know. It maybe it took too long for me to see it. I I realized that there was a problem. I started looking around at other guilds. I noticed that there were guilds out there that were legit like, you know, the bosses were ruthless. A guild's like a crew, a gang, a group of people. Am I right about that? Yeah, guild's like a group of uh you know, players of a okay, game. Cool. Right. And so I noticed some of these guilds. I had people reach out to me directly that joined our guild and they were like, we love you guys. You're, you're great because you're nice to us. You treat us well. I will say I talked to a woman who had stories about different guilds, uh, exploiting running it like a sweatshop kind of not just a sweatshop, but like sexual favors. Oh God. Like you got to send me, you know, nudes to get on the team. So this is going on. Jesus. There were there were Axie players emerging with, you know, trying to get these scholarships, scantily clad outfits, this, that, and the other. So um now here we are, and you know, there's this this concept of this criticism that, like, yeah, uh the landlords are all pissed off. The landlords is a little bit of a different story. They bought the land years ago. They were hoping to get returns on it. Now Axie's been owned. Everything's changing. So I don't know, man. This is like, I really feel that I truly believe that Axie Infinity is onto something. I do not think that Sky Mavis is like, yeah, let's build a game to exploit a bunch of third world people. It isn't, I just don't, I don't. It seems like it was doing more good than bad. It was. I feel like it was for a long time. It set the bar. Now, at the end of my days at Voltaire, I had interviewed with a, a metaverse gaming company. And as I was interviewing, going through the interview process with these guys, they were, I couldn't believe this, but they were so against gaming guilds. And they were like, no, this is the whole concept of scholarships and guilds. It should just be, 
one person plays that game, you can earn a little bit of extra money for playing, but you're not going to earn a living on play to earn. And they were pretty adamant about that. So there's different threads in the community now, and I, I wouldn't even call it community, I guess, the gaming, uh, the, the blockchain gaming industry. There, there's these different schools of thought now about how to approach this. So there's, you know, I feel like Axie let the cat out of the bag. They've proven that it can be done. It doesn't look to be sustainable. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that they can't tweak it and figure it out. Yeah, somebody could definitely improve on it. I, I have one burning question during this whole thing. And so if I were to ask the Axie Infinity team, like, how? Where does this money come from and how is it sustainable? Like, what's the high-level answer on on where how they're able to continue to pay these people. Is there ad revenue? Are they staking coins and they're getting DeFi revenue and able to pay these people or what's going on? There's a good, that's a good question. I can try and add a link to the show notes because this question has come up so many times that Axie has a number of different articles they've published where they really go into depth on the tokenomics and you know how it's designed and, and, and these types of things. The, the criticism... The, the relatively like simple overarching criticism is no, it's Ponzi. More people have to continue buying axes, the you know, the little fish NFTs that you play with. Uh, the the you know, the basic observation or criticism is that in order for the whole thing to keep working, people keep having to buy NF have keep having to buy the axes. So, you know, if that criticism were true, we could look for a sharp decline in in purchasing of axes and know that probably shortly thereafter uh, yeah, things are going to... It's important to think about that Axie had all the success in the middle of a hype and bull cycle, you know? So it's like everybody's a genius in a bull market. You know, everybody's buying these NFTs, but like what happens when the space quiets down and there's a 80% drawdown in prices and there's not these new buyers coming in and that that might be getting closer to the time that we're seeing now. So that's uh, that's that's pretty crazy. I support Axie. I don't, I think that changes need to be made. I believe that they created something fantastic. I, they set the bar. They changed the way that people look at blockchain gaming. So, they, they did something, I don't know, amazing. And maybe it wasn't sustainable. Maybe it is. Maybe they're going to figure it out. Maybe they won't. But I know that there are enough people now that have seen it and are building their own new games in different ways that somebody's going to get this model right. And look, most like mainstream AAA video games, do they continue to earn money in massive amounts year after year? No, most likely not. I don't think so. They, they peak, right? They, yeah. they sell a lot at first, a couple years. Not my, I don't know a ton about that, but I'm fairly certain that, you know, and so maybe Axie should have like, not tried to maybe they should have like planned to close shop like the game's only gonna be live for two yeah. years i don't know how fun is the game like would would people play it if there was no financial incentive or are they just there because they're they're earning it while they're playing i think that people would definitely play it without the direct financial incentives you would want to you need something that you're winning sure. you know i mean but just to score alone i think people would still play it not nearly as many you wouldn't have guilds emerging right um the the whole you know the the expense of the nfts but it, yeah, yeah i guess in that context you wouldn't even need nfts so yeah it, it's it's a lot like pokemon i'll right? just have to dive in there and do it i'm not much of a gamer myself but i just got to get in there to to see what all the hype or previous hype was about 
dude, I got destroyed. It took me a lot longer than I want to admit to, to figure out like the basics of Zach got wrecked by a 14 year old in, in the Philippines or something. Oh dude, destroyed <laughs> many times. And, uh, uh finally kind of, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think my score ever made it up past like 1300 for what it's worth. This has been an awesome, uh, show, man. I, this, the beanstalk thing is absolutely insane. We had a separate freestyle conversation lined up that we're not going to hit, but if you want to check the show notes, there's a bunch of notes that I did on it in there. For sure. Zach works really hard on these notes. He's always like, I'm going to do this in a half an hour or an hour. And four hours later, Zach's, you know, diving into these projects and looking at the smart contracts and stuff. So I appreciate him putting in that work. So thanks to Zach for, if you like those show notes. Oh yeah. Hopefully, you know, we got some feedback that, that people are liking the show notes. So I'm going to keep putting those together and yeah, like always, man, thanks for the links and the stories and coming over to record this because otherwise I would probably just be talking my wife's ear off about it. I'm sure that's still going to happen. <laughs> I'm sure we're not fully filling that void, but yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I am uh, optimistic about the future of this podcast just because we're having so much fun doing it and can't wait to see what we get to talk about next week. So. Right on, man. We'll talk to you next week. Peace.